Father, here we are in your presence. Thank you for giving us the privilege of worshiping you. Lord, we ask that you would minister to our hearts, that you would give us a hunger and thirst for more of you, that you give us a desire to walk more closely with you, that you would open our eyes to see more of your incredible grace. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. When I was a kid, my, my grandparents lived down in Florida. They lived near Orlando. And so each Christmas, we'd make the drive from Pennsylvania down to Florida. It usually took us all night, all day and all night to drive there. And we'd get there sometime early in the morning. We would crash. I would usually sleep near the Christmas tree. And there was lots of fun things that we would do during Christmas at my grandparents' house. But one thing in particular that I'm thinking about this morning was kind of a little odd. We would go each year about an hour away to a friend of my grandparents' apartment. He lived at this little apartment near the beach. We didn't go there to go to the beach. We went to go to this man's home. Now, I can tell you this morning, I can't remember this man's name, nor his wife's name. I can't tell you the relationship between my grandpa and him and how they became friends. I think that he might have worked for the church or something like that, and my grandpa did too. But I can't tell you a lot about this man. But I can tell you what his passion in life was. Because as a kid, I remember being so excited to go to his apartment. Because as you walk into his apartment, the door would open and it would swing open to the tiny little living room there that was made even smaller by the gigantic amount of work that he had put into his living room. You see, in his living room, he built this huge platform and he had built these mounds that he painted like mountains and he had made all of these cities and then he had put this model train track where a, a model train could go around and he put all of these cars and figures and he had this model train village and I would watch that train as it would go around the mountain, it would loop over the bridge and it would go through the tunnel, it would come back around. It was fascinating to me as a little child. The one thing that I remember this man for is building a model train set. Here's my question to you this morning. Now, this man might have been remembered for a lot more things than that, but what will you be remembered for? When people think back on your life, what do people already know you for? And one day, what will people remember you for? We find in the Bible various chapters that actually help us in remembering what people did who uh, and, and how they lived, uh, some of those chapters are not as interesting as other chapters. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4. Now, if you're like me, when you get to a chapter like Genesis chapter 4 and you read this genealogy, you think, okay, why is this in the Bible? But when you read a genealogy, what can be really helpful to you is to look for things that stick out. One thing that we won't look at today is the meanings of the names. That's a little harder to find. You've got to get a concordance. You've got to look up each meaning. And if you look at those, there's actually something fascinating that comes out of Genesis chapter 5 by doing that. Maybe we'll look at that in a coming week. But if you look at Genesis chapter 4, we want to just look today at what are the things that are abnormal. Not just this guy had this son who had this son. But what are the things that stick out? And there's two different genealogies. The first one starts in verse 16 after Cain has killed Abel. He's been sent from the presence of the Lord, and he actually chooses to leave the presence of the Lord, and he's dwelling in the land of Nod. Now let's find out, first of all, what does it say about Cain that is special here? All right, so our first slide here, we're going to go through each of the things in Genesis chapter 4. In verse 
uh, 17, it says that Cain built a, what does it say? Cain built a city. Okay? So that's what it tells us is special about Cain after he has a child. But then we keep on reading and we find Lamech in verse 19. And Lamech, what does it say about Lamech? Then Lamech took for himself two wives. So what did Cain do that's noted that's special here? He built a city. What is noted here that Lamech did that was special? He took two wives, not just one, but he took two wives. It doesn't necessarily comment on that, but we'll see as we go along. That's not a very good thing. Right? And then verse 20 tells us about a person named Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Right? So Cain is known for building a city. Lamech is known for having two wives. Jabel is known for having been the father of those who have livestock and who dwell in tents. Right? So then we have Jubal, his brother. In verse 21, it says he's the father of those who play the harp and the flute. Okay, so this guy is known for being the father of those, his descendants. Maybe he got, gave them music lessons. Maybe he supplied them with instruments. But he's known as the father of those who play the harp and the flute. Now we have in verse 22, Tubal Cain. And what is Tubal Cain known in verse 22? It says he was an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. Okay, so these are the things that jump out in this genealogy. Cain builds a city. Lamech has two wives. Jabel is the one who dwells in tents and is the father of those who dwell in tents and has livestock. Jubal is the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And Tubal Cain is an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. Besides taking two wives, most of that is not really problematic. But there's something that's not mentioned even once in this entire genealogy. Any guesses as to what that is? Or who that is? God. God is not mentioned one single time in this entire genealogy. Now, on the flip side of that, look at the very next genealogy. It starts in verse 25. It talks about Adam knowing his wife. And then it goes on to say in verse 26, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And then what does it say? Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. All right, so first of all, we're going to note that Cain's descendants were remembered by what they accomplished. You see that? Cain's descendants, they're known for building cities. They're known for instruments. They're known for taking two wives. They're known for their actions. But we're going to notice that something's a little different as we go through the genealogy of Seth. Right? So Enosh, when he's born, people begin to pray. They begin to call on God. Then Enoch is born, and we look down in verses 22 and 24, and we find that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. And that after walking with God, he's taken to heaven. So, first of all, you have Enosh, people begin to pray. Then you have Enoch, he's walking with God, and God takes him to heaven. Then you have the, the other thing that stands out in the genealogy is Noah, in verse 29, it says the definition of his name, basically. In verse 29 of chapter 5, it says that, And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. The word is for Noah in Hebrew is basically comfort or rest is going to be given through this person. And if you look through all of the names in Genesis chapter 5, 
they're all significant, and many of them point us to God. You see the difference in these two genealogies? So on the one hand, while you have Cain's descendants being remembered for what they accomplished, what they did, their model train sets, their harps, their wives, their things like that, we find that Seth's descendants were remembered by who they knew. They're remembered because people were calling on God. They're remembered because they walked with God. They're remembered because God took them to heaven. They're remembered because their name meant that God was going to do something through them in their lives. There's a difference in these two genealogies. And with that backdrop, we jump into the story of Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. And as we do this, I would just want you to ask this question. What will you be remembered by? What will I be remembered by? What will it be that people, when they think of my life, when they think of your life, what will it be that they remember about you, that will be special about you? Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So here's some language that we can piece together based on what we've just seen. The one genealogy was all about men and what they accomplished. The other genealogy was all about God and people's relationship with God. So it says the sons of God, who would that be? Which genealogy? Cain's genealogy? Seth's genealogy. Seth's genealogy. So so it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and what did they see? Oh, These are very beautiful women. And then notice what they do. And they took wives for themselves. Is it bad to get married? The Bible is very clear about the blessings of marriage. And it's an awesome thing to get married. But they took wives, multiple, for themselves of all whom they chose. They just chose wives, beautiful women, and brought them to be married to them. We don't we have to read between the lines that that this is what creates a huge problem because God had this special group of people who were passionate about walking with him. And this tells us that it's really important who we marry. If we marry somebody who doesn't love Jesus, I mean, we should be reaching out to those people. We should be loving them. We should be friends with them. But when we marry somebody like that, it can have a tendency to edge our life down the same track. You see that again and again in the Bible. You see it in many people's history. I've seen it in many of my friends' lives. And I've seen the opposite in those who marry somebody who's passionate about walking with Jesus. But look at what happens in verse 3. It says, And the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now what sticks out to you about this verse? As you read this verse, it says, It it sounds like God is kind of giving up on humanity, but, but before you jump to that conclusion, there's something beautiful here. What does it say that the Holy Spirit does with all flesh? With man? Strives. The Holy Spirit is working on hearts. That's what this verse tells me first off. My spirit will not strive with man forever. So it says that there's a limit to what he's going to do in hearts, but the Holy Spirit is working on hearts. Every heart on the planet. There are over 7 billion people on this planet. And this verse tells me that the Holy Spirit is tugging, striving, wooing, drawing people to see Jesus as a loving Savior. That's an incredible reality that we find again and again in the Bible. But here it says, I'm going to give it another 120 years. 
And then that's going to be the completion of what I am able to do in hearts. And we'll see a little bit more clearly what's revealed about why the Spirit would ever stop striving with hearts on this planet. And it's really important that we see this picture because Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. So the same way that it was back then, the same exact things are going to be happening in the end. That's why it's great for us to look at this today. So let's continue on and we'll go to verse 5. It says this in verse 5. Then the Lord saw... Now, I love the language that's used here. God takes action. First, he's talking. Then he's looking. And he's, he's, he's participating with his creation. He's allowing for us to see that, that he doesn't just blindly act, but that he, he cares about what's going on with each and every human on this planet. That he's intimately acquainted with the details of our lives. That, that he's watching, not as a God to, to squash people, but a God who's wooing and striving trying to bring people to his heart of love. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And notice what it says. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Here's where we see the key to why the Spirit would ever stop striving with anyone. An infinite loving God who would lay down his own life on the cross. What would ever bring him to the end of being willing to strive with a heart? It's this. The thoughts of their heart are only evil continually. They have totally shut out the Spirit. The Spirit's striving. The Spirit's wooing. The Spirit's trying to get in. But they've been building up a wall, brick by brick by brick. And finally, they put that last brick in and said, Jesus, I want nothing to do with you. I'm done. And they've stopped the wooing of the Holy Spirit. An incredible book, Steps to Christ, tells us that if we do not resist the drawings of infinite love, of the Holy Spirit, that we will be drawn. The key is not to resist the drawings of the Holy Spirit. That is what is taking place here. It's saying that, look, the Holy Spirit is striving with every heart on the planet, but every heart's thoughts are not about the strivings of the Spirit in the heart, but they are on evil continually. And we see the picture of what this is like. It's, it's pretty dreadful, but it's like a little reflection of what we're seeing in the world today. Verse 6 goes on to say, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. He was to the place of actually crying over his creation. He was mourning over, over what had taken place. When he had come to see his creation at first, after he had created, he said, The Lord saw that it was very good. But now he looks at it, and it's full of wickedness, and his heart is breaking. The interesting thing is, when you look at it, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man, not actually that that verb, sorry, is the same root word for the, the word Noah, to comfort or to give rest. There's interesting parallels here that maybe we'll get a chance to flush out as we go along further. But here we see that God is sorrowful over his creation. So what does that tell us? When, when God sees people who are acting really wickedly, they're totally breaking his law, they're, they're people that are, are hurting other people, they're oppressing people, how does God feel about those criminals, those wicked people, the people who are really bad people? How does God feel? Does he feel sad, grieved? Because he longs for them to accept 
His grace. He longs for them to accept the strivings of His Spirit. God is not an angry God looking to crush out wickedness. He's a God of compassion, a God who feels deeply. And as He looks at this planet, He's seeing suffering that is being multiplied over and over. And as He looks at that, He's grieved. He's heartbroken because they won't accept His love and His mercy and His grace. We'll keep on reading. Jump down to verse 11 with me. This is that picture that grieves God. It says, the earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with, what does it say? It was filled with violence. Okay, so God created this planet and he gave this order to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And they've multiplied, they're filling the earth, but because they're choosing a different master, they're filling it with violence. And it's pretty fascinating to look at what that violence looked like. Back in that genealogy, Cain's genealogy, we find this guy named Lamech, the, the jerk who took two wives, right? This is what he ends up saying in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 23. Then Lamech said to his wives, his two wives, and he addresses them not very kindly, and then he says this, I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. So this is a little picture, a little glimmer of what the violence was like. It's saying, hey, a guy hurts me, a guy wounds me, and I I would kill him. A guy takes my stuff and I'm going to take him out. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you worse. That was the principle that the world was operating on, which is the exact opposite of the principle that Jesus came to give us. He said, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. On this is based all the law and the prophets. But he goes on to say this, verse 24. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. He's not forgiving 70 times 7, but he's avenging himself for anything and everything 70 times 7. Violence was filling the planet. It just gives you a little picture of what it would have been like to live in that time. And maybe it's not that far from what the world is like today. The direction that the world is trending today. I mean, just take a look at politics for a moment, right? So I am not going to support any political persuasion this morning, but I am here to tell you that we've got a problem because there is violence, there's anger over politics. Just take a look on Facebook for a moment. Just take a look at what's happening in our city streets. People are hateful and hurtful to each other over political persuasions. And that, in the sight of God, is grieving to his heart. It's true in families. You look at what's happening in families today. Marriages are breaking apart. People are hurting each other in their own families. Parents and children. All relationships are falling apart on this planet. And it grieves the heart of God. We see this little picture, this little glimmer of what was taking place before the flood. And it's really not that far removed from the direction that the planet is headed today. And if I read what Jesus says correctly, that as in the days of Noah so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Today, the good news is that the Spirit of God is still striving with hearts. He's striving with your heart. He's striving with my heart. He's striving with that neighbor down the street that you're sure could never come to know Jesus. He's striving with your boss who you've tried to share Jesus with and who just won't listen. He's striving with that distant relative who you've been praying with for so long. And he won't give up until that heart has fully closed itself off and every intent of that thought is evil, that heart is evil continually. That's the way that a God of grace operates. He won't give up. He won't stop. He won't stop loving 
until he knows that that person has had every opportunity to accept him. So the earth was corrupt before God, verse 11 of chapter 6 says, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. He sees this problem and he's, he's grieved. He says, I don't know what to do about it except for to blot out this creation. And if it weren't for verse 8, this would be a very sad story. But thankfully, we can go back and we can read. First, we'll read verse 7 and then we'll read verse 8. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. That word destroy in the Greek is simply to blot out, to wash away, or to destroy. He's like, I'm going to wash the planet of all this violence. It's, there are people being oppressed. There are poor who are being downtrodden. The weak are being mistreated. And I'm not going to stand for it much longer. I'm going to give another 120 years. And after that, after that, we've got to recreate this planet. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Praise God that verse 8 comes. Verse 8 says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, since we're midway through and some of you are beginning to doze, stand up with me and just read this verse with me. And I want you to just think about this all week long, okay? I'm serious. Stand up. You're not committing to anything by standing. Just stand up. Okay? Ready? But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. One more time. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, you can sit down. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is good news. This is incredible to know that the God of the universe looks down on a planet full full of violence, and yet he sees one man, a man who is worthy of grace. Hang on a second. Is anyone worthy of grace? What is it that enables Noah to receive grace? Why did he receive grace when others did not receive grace? I believe that the picture comes in the next verse. Let's look at verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, or a righteous man is another, that word just. Perfect in his generations, Noah walked with God. Now if I read this verse, I could think, okay, I'm not going to find favor or grace in God's sight because I'm not righteous, I'm not perfect, and so that verse doesn't apply to me. But here's the beautiful thing. Okay, Hebrew thought, is not like the way that we think today. The way that they wrote things was not the same that we write things today. If I were to write a story today, I would write it like this. Let's say about a boy in the backyard. So there was a boy in the backyard, and he was kicking a soccer ball around. And as he kicked the soccer ball around, he kicked it so hard that it shattered the window, and his mom was angry. Okay? So I could tell you this story, or I could read this story to you, and I would start with the causes. The boy is kicking the ball around. The boy kicks the ball too hard. The window is shattered, and because of all that, the mother is angry. Hebrew thought does not reason from cause to effect. I mean, sometimes it does, but Hebrew thought often will reason from effect to cause. Okay, so when you read this, if you were to read it from effect to cause, it would be like me telling that same exact story and say, the boy's mother was angry with him. The window was shattered. He kicked the ball too hard. He was playing soccer in the backyard. And sometimes you'll read phrases in Hebrew and you're thinking, 
wait a second, that seems all backwards. Well, that's because it made sense to them in the way that they reasoned. So when we read this verse, I think that that's an incredible way to look at this verse because it sandwiches what God has given, unmerited favor, which is grace, to Noah. And here it says that he was a just man, perfect in his generations. But if we read it from effect to cause, we would start with Noah walked with God. Noah was just it was a, Noah was perfect in his generations. Noah was a just man. Does this make sense? So because Noah was walking with God, he was perfect in his generations. Or the word there is Tom, complete. He was, he was complete in his generation compared to the people that were around him. He was, he was headed against the flow compared to what everybody else was headed towards. He was walking with God, and through that, he was complete or perfect in his generations. And because of that, Noah was a righteous man. If we read a verse like this, it helps us to see that the cause is a relationship with the God of the universe. The cause is a relationship of walking in union with God. The result is righteousness, which righteousness is likeness to God and God is love. So that's restoration of relationships. That's when that guy in politics is saying stuff about somebody that you love and you're upset about it, but you love that person anyway. It's when the boss at works gives you instructions that you don't want to follow, but you follow them anyway out of love. It's when you and your wife are having a disagreement and you decide to do what Ephesians says and to submit to one another. You decide to let her have her way to, to lovingly take care of her needs before your own. It means in your relationship with your children to look out for their good before you watch out for your own good. That is what it means to be righteous, to be like God, to be loving like God is. Noah walked with God. And the good news this morning is that you too can walk with God. You can have a relationship with Him. He can be your friend, just like He was Enoch's friend. Just like when Seth was, had Enosh and people began to call on the name of the Lord. We can have a relationship with the God of the universe. He's longing for it. He's just waiting for us to ask. So we find here that Noah found grace because he made himself available for friendship with God. Noah found that grace, that favor with God, because he was willing to walk with him. He was willing to become friends with him. He spent time with him. He knew him as his personal Savior. And he experienced grace. And what incredible grace that was. And what incredible grace it took to live the life that Noah lived. Now I want you to to think with me for a minute. So here we have this beautiful painting that, that comes later on. But I want you to imagine that he's got this huge boat that God tells him to build. And we'll talk more about it. But What's going to sustain you to build a boat like that that's that's something that that the world is going to look at you and say, that's ridiculous. There's no water here for him to float that massive thing in. And what is this? He's telling us about a flood. There's never been rain. And every morning you have to wake up and you go out and you hire contractors to work on your ark and you're there overseeing the projects and you're working day in and day out. You're pounding the nails in and you're working on your ark for 120 years. And during that 120 years, do you know what Noah was doing? Peter actually tells us about it in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, In that time that God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. So what does it tell us that he was? 
a preacher of righteousness. So I imagine he might have had maybe the first few stories of the ark built and he has this gigantic crowd around him and they're all saying, what are you doing? What is this big construction that you're making? And he begins to tell them about the Holy Spirit striving with their hearts. He begins to tell them about a God of love who's providing a way of escape. He begins to tell them and to plead with them to join him in building the ark, to join him in being a part of this work of salvation. But imagine as people walk away, and year by year he has to go on building that ark. What sustains a guy to keep building an ark for 120 years to keep preaching against the stream of what everybody's believing, what everybody's thinking? It takes walking with God. It takes a friendship with God. It takes, like Paul says, to be compelled by the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He was a preacher of righteousness, but Peter also tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does it mean to sanctify the Lord God? Sanctify means to set apart. And some, some modern translations will say, sanctify the Lord Jesus in your hearts. So to set apart God, set apart Jesus, make that a priority in your heart. Set this apart as, as the priority in your life. And always, what does it say? Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So in our lives, as we're living a life that may be against the flow because we're believing what Jesus has told us in his word, And people come up to us and they ask us, why are you doing this? We can tell them about the hope that we have in an incredible Savior and the beautiful picture that he has given us of his love for us and how we just want for that love to be a part of our lives. Set apart the Lord always and be ready to give reason for that hope. You and I are called to be preachers of righteousness on a day-to-day basis with a boss, with a person next door who asks you, why do you leave every Saturday morning to all dressed up or whatever, however you come to church. Why do you leave like that? You can tell them where you're headed and what you're up to. Why is it that you're so friendly to me? Why is it that you're so nice? I hope that that's the types of questions that I get and that you get on a daily basis. First Peter goes on to say this though, and this is one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. We won't dive into it in, in detail. I actually had to write a Greek exegesis paper about it, and I got excited about it after writing about it. But there's people have taken this and twisted it to believe a lot of crazy things. But first Peter chapter three, verse 18 says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins. So he took his, our sins upon us. This is showing us the substitutionary uh, sacrifice of Jesus, that, that he suffered on our behalf, that his sins, our sins were put on him, that the God of the universe said, I don't want them to experience all of that corruption, all that violence that they deserve, but I'm going to take all of that into myself to show them how much I love them. So he suffered once for the sins, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Now here's the tricky part. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Um, so this is talking about how we choose to let Christ live in us. You remember Galatians 2, verse 20. It says, For I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Jesus now lives in me. Choosing to give up that old life and to let Christ live in me. So without going into a lot of the details, here's the beautiful picture. We're called to give a reason for the hope that's in us. We're called to accept what Jesus has done for us. And in accepting that, We are made alive through the Spirit. And then it talks about what Jesus has done. It says, By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. This is talking about what Jesus did. And some people will say, Well, what spirits in prison? 
Well, what did Jesus come when he announced his ministry? What did he say in, in uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 18? He said, I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives. If he was talking about physical liberty, he would have gone and freed John the Baptist from prison, right? He's not talking about physical liberty. He's talking about spiritual liberty. He said, whoever commits a sin becomes a slave to that sin. But the son has come that you might have life, that you can be set free. Right? So, so he went, so we're looking at this, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. And the Bible sometimes refers to the soul of a person as spirits who are, and you can look in Psalms, you see that it sometimes refers to people that are, are not following God as being imprisoned. So he goes and he preaches to these people, and, and here's the reason that all this is important. I need you to track with me because this is a little bit confusing up until this point until you get to verse 20. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited, we could say 120 years, in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. What this is telling us is that Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, his pre-incarnate state, he came and he preached through Noah to everyone that was there before the ark, everyone on the planet at that time, and he gave everyone an opportunity to get on the boat. Sadly, only eight chose to accept that invitation. But Noah was given grace, and by giving grace, he wasn't just given a physical power or a spiritual power. He was given a relationship. Jesus himself came and lived in him, and preach the message to the world. That's what it says back a few chapters earlier in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. It says, Of this salvation, this beautiful gospel message, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So they're prophesying about it. Was Noah a prophet? God came to Noah, gave him a message. He said 120 years. That's how much longer that the Spirit will continue to strive. So he's a prophet talking about salvation. And it says, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of that grace that would come to you. And notice this. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In all of those prophets of old, from Noah to Elijah to John the Baptist, it was Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, who was working in them to point forward to the coming of the Messiah, who is the salvation of the world. So even Noah, the grace that he was given was to have the Spirit of Christ telling the world of the gift of salvation, not just of an ark that would save them from a physical flood, but of a God of love who would lay down his life for them in order that they really could be filled with his righteousness. In the book Education, page 276, it says this, These things were not written merely that we might read and wonder, but that the same faith which wrought in God's servants of old might work in us. We don't read stories about Noah in order to say, wow, what an amazing faith he had that he could build a boat for 120 years. We read that so that we can say, Jesus, would you live in me too? Jesus, I want to walk with you like Noah did so that I could be perfect in my generation, so that I could be righteous, so that I can find grace in your sight, so that I can share you with the world. goes on to say, in no less marked a manner than he wrought then will he work now, wherever there are hearts of faith to be channels of his power. 
God is still at work today and God is longing to live in your heart and my heart. And he's longing for us to be able to tell the world about a wonderful Savior. When I went to Manchester, England a few weeks back to talk with them about Jesus, really, to talk with them about having a relationship with Jesus, about walking with God, each day I would hop in the car with the pastor and we'd drive back and forth and and some kids would hop in the car with us sometimes and, and they'd be given a, a ride to the, the church location. But when there was no kids in the car, sometimes the pastor and I would be talking about the different kids and what was going on in their lives. Towards the end of the week, he told me about one particular girl and he said, you would never guess it. But he said, in fact, all of our kids, they're, they feel so burdened. We're, we're high pressure. They're, they're from, uh, cultures that are really high pressure for success and they're pushing their kids to be successful with their violins with their grades and when it comes to religion they're telling them that you've got to measure up you've got to be to this standard you've got to be able to do these things and the message that i was telling them was it's about who you know not what you do and that what you who you know will transform what you do and he said as they've been listening to this message and they've been getting excited about it he said there's this girl who I didn't realize, but she tried to commit suicide last week. She just realized that she couldn't measure up. She realized that it was too much, that she couldn't accomplish all of these things. And she's looking at what she had to offer, but now she's looking at it differently. She's looking at it as what Jesus can do for her. She's looking at it with hope. She's looking at it as a relationship with God. Friends, there is a world that's hurting out there. And maybe some of you are hurting this morning for the recollection the realization that there is a God of love who wants to give you grace, who wants to give you life, who wants to fill you with hope this morning. And I praise God that he wants to use you to be agents of that hope with this lost world. Revelation chapter 14, we'll look at this last verse. Verse 12 says this, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints or the patience of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Today we're not called to build an ark, a physical building, but we are called to build something in our lives. We're called to walk with God just like Noah walked with God. And as we walk with him, we're going to find that he's going to work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. As we have the faith of Jesus, getting to know Jesus, believing in his love that he has for us, his promises to us, that transformation will take place in our hearts that will reflect to the world a God of love who cares more about the people out there than even about his own kingdom, his own throne, because he loves this world more than he loves his own existence. My question as we conclude today is, what will you, what will I be remembered by? Will people remember us for our model trains, for the people that we taught their instruments, for the the marriage relationships we had? Or will people remember us as the ones who walked with God? They'll say, well, one thing I could tell you about them is that guy knew God as a loving friend and Savior. And that was attractive to me. And and I just knew that I wanted to know Jesus like they knew Jesus. Today, I want to make just two invitations. One, walk with God. Can you say that with me? Walk with God. God. There's nothing more important in our entire lives than to walk with God. 
What does that look like? We have the Bible that has story after story of who God is. As we fix our eyes in Jesus, on Jesus through the Bible, as we take time with Him on a day-to-day basis, the more that we're fixed on that, the more that throughout the day we're going to be thinking about Him. And the thoughts and intents of our hearts will not be evil continually, but will be on Jesus continually. And the more that we think about Jesus, the more that His presence will be with us and we'll be constantly immersed in a God of love who loves us more than his own existence. And we can take time talking to him throughout the day. We can literally have a friendship with Jesus. Recently, I've just been thinking about it. You know, of all the things that I could want for my entire life, there's absolutely nothing more important than just to know that Jesus is my best friend. than to have my heart open to that every moment of every day. Just to say, Jesus... I want to be friends with you. You've done so much. You're reaching out to me and I just want to stop resisting and I want to let you have my heart today. That's invitation number one. What was it? To walk with God. Invitation number two is to share that incredible friendship. Let Jesus be in you preaching to the world. Let Jesus live out in you so that you have to tell people, look, This is the amazing God that I have. He's changing my life. I don't know how to explain it except for that I have this relationship with him and he's so beautiful. And and I just want to invite you to, to experience this for yourself. And one way that you can do that practically is as you leave today, there are flyers there that tell about Vacation Bible School. And you can go to that neighbor who has kids. You can go to your family who have children. You can invite people that you don't even know and say, hey, I want to invite you to know about this Jesus because I think that he is really amazing. So as you leave today, there's flyers on the back table. I want to give you the invitation, number one, to walk with God. And number two, to share that walk with the world. Let's pray together. Father, we're not capable of this in our own strength. But you've given us the invitation and you've made us the promise that that the Spirit is striving with our hearts. And if we don't resist, we will be drawn. Father, it's obvious that the majority of the world is resisting. And sometimes the easier thing even it seems in our culture is to resist. But Father, I pray right now for any heart in this place that's resisting, that they would see you as the God of love that you are. That they would let you tear down the walls in their heart. They would open their heart to you and let you be the provider for every need, that they would let you be the Savior, that they would be determined to walk with you, that their thoughts would be on Jesus. And Father, I pray too that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we open our hearts to walk with you, that that would overflow into the lives around us. God, I pray for the same Spirit of Jesus that preached through Noah to preach through us. Not always by what we say, but sometimes by what we say. But may people around us not hear our voice and not see our actions, but may they see Jesus in us. God, we pray for this miracle because of all that Jesus has accomplished for us. May we find grace in your sight as we open our hearts to you, a God of love. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.